taking VC money means you're committing to a venture scale outcome, but that venture scale outcome is what forces you into a different lifestyle. And I've seen this with my friends, right? And I have experienced a bit of it firsthand. And actually, like the reason why I got to see both sides of the coin a little bit is because of my previous business, I, I didn't have money, right? I wrote about this, you know, I moved to New York, I was always starving, I hmm. couldn't find product market fit and everybody was raising money. So I tried to raise money. Everybody was in, they were giving me pitch deck advice, right? Teaching me how to pitch. There's there's a certain structure and they were introducing me to investors. So I probably talked to at least when I was in New York, 20 VCs. And so I got to hear some of the feedback and how much they diminish, oh, just a lifestyle business. And even maybe like, maybe my ability and my ambition as an entrepreneur because my product wasn't scalable in their mind. Like in, in language like, oh, if you want to do that, it's fine. Like it's just a lifestyle business. And, you know, that really makes you feel shitty, right, as a person, because you're already trying so hard. And I didn't really understand at the time, but because I couldn't raise capital and we became profitable in the process of that, I got to experience complete freedom. Get ready for the Product Tea with Leah, your fun-sized dose of business, tech, growth, and product chatter. I'm your host, Leah, and it's time to spill the tea. Good morning to the product tea. Hold on to your boots, everyone. Today, we are joined by the CEO who bootstraps businesses faster than you can spell venture capital. After selling Spacio, an industry-leading product suit for real estate agents, she did not just rest on her laurels. She transformed the yawn fest of daily training webinars into a booming business with webinars. She is like the MacGyver of the startup world. Give her a problem and she'll find a savvy solution without needing any VC money. Welcome to the product team, Melissa Kwan. It's so nice to have you. How are you doing this morning? Good. Thank you so much for that glowing introduction. <laughs> it's a lot to live up to. Well, how would you rate this from one to absolutely bombing a webinar? Ten. At the intro, you mean? <laughs> yeah, just the intro itself, the quality of it. I, I mean, I would say it's exceptional. It's probably like a 12 out of 10. Correct answer. Once again, very good. Can you introduce yourself to the unlucky people who do not know you yet? <laughs> well, it's your lucky day. My name is Melissa Kwan. I'm a 13-year bootstrapper, three businesses, working on my third one. Currently the co-founder and CEO of eWebinar. And if you don't know what eWebinar is, we help automate webinars by turning any video into a webinar that you can set on a recurring schedule. So imagine doing hundreds of demos, onboarding, trainings without being in front of a camera every single month. That is pretty impressive, and it does not really just show how much of a serial entrepreneur you are, but also like a successful entrepreneur. And I think uh, we're going to talk about this in a second. But let me just ask you two, two questions first, personal ones. What do people get wrong about you once they get to know you? They think I am extroverted. <laughs> and this is something we talked about before we hit record, because I do love socializing and going to places and speaking my mind and, and things like that, but it drains me, I think, a lot faster than a real extrovert. So I do like people, but I like mostly my people. <laughs> and I like, you know, meeting new people, but it is time boxed, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can totally relate to this. I think my proverbial garlic as a social vampire <laughs> is probably <laughs> small talk. That drains yeah. me faster than anything. And you usually have this in groups of like 10 random people yeah. in a room that you've never met before. Yeah. Is there anything that you are afraid of right now, professionally or personally? Yeah. The thing that's very top of mind is my business not growing. 
And I think for the first time since the beginning, we're starting to see like pretty stagnant numbers for like the last like two months, three months kind of thing. And maybe it's the time of the year. It is the end of the year. Or maybe it's just the time of the startup where you have to get more creative. But that is definitely something that scares me right now. Let's talk about this because I think this is very much on brand with you as well. I think just for those people who do not know you as well, I think the one thing that you do really, really well is being honest on LinkedIn. And we also talked about this a little bit in the pre-talk. You're very, very good in sharing realities. It's not about the beautified investor slides. You're not relying on VC money. You work with what you have and you did so many, many times, which is the reality for most startups out there, actually. And we tend to pretend a little bit on LinkedIn that everybody has their shit together. Everybody's crushing it. Everybody just has so much more VC money. And if you don't, then you're just a loser. But I think the reality is the exact opposite. And let's talk about this really quickly. And I think I've been in the position where I was part of two hypergrowth startups. And these hypergrowth startups have this almost crazy phase of growth where you just believe the sky is the limit. And it's very infectious. Once the numbers go up and they keep going up and they keep going up, you start to believe it. And then at some point, then the curve starts to flatten, as you said. Can you walk us a little bit through the timeline? I think you're talking about eWebinar right now. Yeah. In the sense of like, how did this go? Like, where did the numbers start to go? And like, so what is the scale of the business right now? Yeah, so right now, I think we're approaching, I want to say like in a month, we'll be at 1.5 million ARR. So it's a relatively young business. I mean, if you're comparing to, you know, the startups I get written about, but it's the biggest business I've ever built, personally. Mm -hmm. So I think what you know is always relative, right? And I think a lot of people too, they kind of like, they kind of brush off this kind of success. It's like, oh, it's only 1 million or it's only 2 million. You know, I'm trying to get to 10 million. But, you know, getting to 500,000 is hard. Getting to a million is hard. And we're not talking like one sale. We're talking recurring sale, right? So how do you get recurring revenue? You have to continue to provide content and improving your product and making sure you're in the first page of Google. So all these things are also like new, right? So to take you back to the beginning, I incorporated this business like four and a half years ago. So that was two year, or two months after my last startup was acquired. And it took about a year and a half to get the first product out the door. Mm. And I was very conscious about only putting out a product that someone would pay for. There was no alpha. There was no beta. We wanted a product from day one that people would pay for. So yeah, maybe we spent an extra maybe six months building it so that I knew it was good enough for someone to put in their credit card. And so that's why I took you know, a year and a half, maybe a little bit over that. But it took 36 months to get to 1 million AR. And every month, there was a bit of growth, right? So in the beginning, of course, the numbers are low. So you can hit anywhere from 10 to 20%, right? Because you're making very little. And then that percentage goes down, right? Then it's like anywhere between 5 to 10%. And then in the last six months, I would think it's like anywhere from 2 to 6%. Right? So the numbers are going down by percentage because your monthly numbers are getting bigger. Right? So that's, that was kind of the projection. And we've only crossed you know, a million AR like a few, a few months ago. Right? But the reason why there was such a bump from a few months ago is because we added annual plans, we added add-ons, right? different ways to make money from the same audience of people, from the same customers that really believe in us. But at the same time, so more people within our customer base are paying us more but less people are signing up 
or less people are converting after they sign up. So we're kind of at this point where we're like, okay, did we take this growth for granted? Because don't forget, I've never done this before, right? And at every, like, I want to say like from zero to 300,000 or 300,000 to 600,000, they all feel very different, right? At first you're doing founder-led sales, of course, right? You're getting this off the ground. You're talking to every person and the referrals to get it off the ground. And then you run out of leads and then you find ways to attract more people. So what do you do? You write on LinkedIn, you know, you start a podcast, right? You try to create demand where it doesn't exist, right? Because we don't have a Red Ocean product, right? Nobody is going to Google and search and searching, how do I automate my webinars, right? So we have to figure out different ways of creating demand where that doesn't exist, right? So these are all kind of brand new problems, but no. in, a, in a nutshell, that's, that was kind of the trajectory and that's where we are today. I think an interesting thing there is, is that the way that we evaluate business performance is quite tricky if you look behind the curtain. So what I mean with that is that, yes, getting to the first million itself is incredibly difficult. It really is incredibly difficult. It's just like you said, right? Like in order to get to a million first, you have to get to a hundred thousand first. In order to get to a hundred thousand first, you need to get to the first thousand dollars. And the first thousand dollars are the hardest in this entire journey. Because you have a running product, you have someone that is not your mom or your dad or your family that is just like spending this kind of money. And I think the numbers are still despite of what everyone says on LinkedIn, even also for me, I am in the same kind of bubble. All of us are in the same kind of reality. It takes two years to find some kind of resemblance of product market fit. It doesn't yep. matter what kind of a super genius that you are or like what kind of graphs did you see? Like, oh, you know, like how fast that uh, Twitter was growing or like this particular social network or whatever. All of this is like rebranding or whatever. Like none of this is starting on a green field. Building up a new brand that people trust in this economy and with this competition is really, really hard. And I think the one thing that gave me a little bit of peace of mind in this regard is not just to look at your final number in terms of like how much ARR did you make, but how much money did we actually spend to get there? And I don't mean now the runway that you have left. That's really not what I mean. But the, the biggest problem that I see in advising as well on businesses of three to five X of this particular size is, is that they started to scale by just putting more salespeople on it. They yeah. try to force the pipeline. Well, they can do that because they have VC money. <laughs> you can do that if you have the money to spend. Sure, but VCs are also starting to wake up to this where they just yeah. say like, hey, your cake payback or whatever, you know, like it's 18 months. This is just not good. This is not sustainable. But like, what do you do? Like you just try to force growth and that's kind of like the dangerous thing. And that's where I'm saying like, if you are conscious about the efficiency of your revenue, then you can really sleep also through these episodes of, you know, like where it starts to get a little bit stagnant. On the other hand, I would always take a CEO that is panicky in this regard yeah. rather than, oh yeah, we've got everything under control. This is not a problem. Well, I think the what you've mentioned is something I, I also talk about is like the fundamental difference, I think, between VC-backed companies and bootstrap companies is VC-backed companies are revenue-driven, whereas bootstrap companies are profit-driven. Like revenue, of course, is important, but what's more important is, is it covering my burn? And how long is it going to take before it covers my burn? That was the only number I really cared about, right? So David and I, David's my CTO co-founder, who's also my life partner, by the way, we wrote the first checks into the company. We invested, you know, our own money, of course, our own time. That's, you know, a given. Uh, we had a bit of friends and family funding, but there was still like a zero cash date. We're going to run out of cash on this date, right? And then around... 
like $45,000 a month, we got a, a line of credit from CapChase, right? Just to have it. We pulled it, you know, to invest in the business. And then every quarter they increase that. So now we have a line of credit, right? Just to make sure that I don't need to go and ask someone else for the survival of my business anymore. And that stress, even though like, of course it keeps me up at night, right? Because I have to pay people. I want to pay myself a market salary at some point. But that stress, while it is, you know, something that I think about a lot, it does get less stressful as you become closer and closer to profitability, right? Losing 50K a month is not the same as losing 5K a month. So there is now, like, I do feel like, okay, there is a stress of a business, but I'm not nearly as nervous as I was two years ago. And I do feel like I want to figure this out, but I'm not like, oh my God, let's throw everything against the wall and see what sticks because I need to figure this out in two months. So I want to do the right thing for the business. And there's always more stuff to do. But as a bootstrap company, one of the hardest things to do is like, you got to choose, right? Like there's so few people on your team. Everybody's maxed out. You know, you want to have a life as well, right? So out of these 10 things that I think I can do, what are realistically the three things that we can actually focus on and try that will have impact on the business? And these are the things that are more stressful and and top of mind. No, I think this is a very interesting perspective. So I've had four startups. None of them were as successful as yours. And I have a little bit of a differentiated opinion about VCs. I think I have some kind of shared, I don't want to say hatred, but like I kind of have some kind of aversion to a very specific type of VCs. Mm. which was the majority in the past. So I'm very, very suspicious of investment money that comes from VCs that do not offer substantial support into your business and they just give you the money. And I don't mean angel investors, right? Like that's kind of like a different topic where we talk about, you know, like individuals, like giving you some kind of money without board positions or whatever. There's a very specific reason why the time of these predatory cap tables where an investor can grab their investment if your company gets, goes on a fire sale just to protect their kind of investment, you know, like basically just stealing money from all the employees, all the stuff that the founders put in and so forth, and why this is kind of going away. But I would even go further because I've been in a lot of VC meetings and a lot of companies that were seeking VC funding, and I would go as far as say like, do not pick up VC money at all if you do not have a fund that really understands your business on two dimensions. The first one is they need to understand your vertical really, really well. And I want to have a partner usually also on the other side that actually cares about my business. And what I mean with that is like actually care. Yeah. Really, really care. That is super difficult and it's very, very rare. Yeah. And this was the toxicity that we had in the business where you just like, okay, we're in it for the money. We're not even covering that fact. So if you're going to burn, we're going to protect our investment and you might actually burn because of this. And that's kind of a problem that we still have. But I I agree with you that the pressure of putting in your own money is extremely powerful. But that becomes now smaller as you start to grow because your individual employees are starting to get disconnected from this kind of vision. And that's also an interesting kind of journey that you're probably on now yourself. Yeah, I mean, I I have a different... Just to address your previous point, I have a different aversion to VCs. It's kind of on the same thought is a lot of people think that bootstrapping is like a financial decision, right? Funding, like they connect funding to like 
a financial decision, but I actually think for a lot of people, including myself, bootstrapping is a lifestyle choice. And that's what I think most founders don't understand is like taking VC money means you're committing to a venture scale outcome, but that venture scale outcome is what forces you into a different lifestyle. And I've seen this with my friends, right? And I have experienced a bit of it firsthand. And actually like the reason why I got to see both sides of the coin a little bit is because of my previous business, I, I didn't have money right? I wrote about this, you know, I moved to New York. I was always starving. I hmm. couldn't find product market fit and everybody was raising money. So I tried to raise money. Everybody was in, they were giving me pitch deck advice, right? Teaching me how to pitch. There's, there's a certain structure and they were introducing me to investors. So I probably talked to at least when I was in New York, 20 VCs. And so I got to hear some of the feedback and how much they diminish, oh, just a lifestyle business. And even maybe like, maybe my ability and my ambition as an entrepreneur because my product wasn't scalable in their mind. Like in, in language like, oh, if you want to do that, it's fine. Like it's just a lifestyle business. And, you know, that really makes you feel shitty, right, as a person because you're already trying so hard. And I didn't really understand at the time, but because I couldn't raise capital and we became profitable in the process of that, I got to experience complete freedom. Like then I left New York to Nomad and I was doing whatever I want, like, you know, calling all my own shots and then seeing my venture back founder friends having less and less freedom because they need to raise the next round and the next round and the next round. And a lot of founders, like when they read about like what I write and the reason why I write about this on LinkedIn is because I, not because I want to like promote anti-VC, like I want founders everywhere to know that there are many different faces of success. Like you mentioned, it's like if 1% of companies get venture funded, 99% of them are just like us, but we only read about and hear about the 1%. So my goal is to hope to inspire other founders to know that there are different ways of success. And the most important is your own definition, right? Yeah. And, and so I think like, as far as like where we are today, like, I don't think we're big enough that are like that our team members are like kind of disconnected by, you know, to our customers. Like we don't really have that many customers, but honestly, like nobody on my team has done this before. <laughs> so we don't know what we're doing. Like, you know, David has, you know, he's my CTO, but he's been, you know, he worked at Microsoft for 20 years. He had a couple startups that didn't work out and he's never built a product this big before and with this kind of revenue. So this is new for him as well. My COO, who's really like first team member, jack of all trades, he learned digital marketing from the ground up. We hired a marketing agency to teach him because we couldn't afford them. So we hired a marketing agency to teach him how to keyword research and SEO and write long-form content and short-form content. And he's also like a product manager and he specs everything. So everyone's doing this for the first time. And I think that's the biggest challenge is like, we're all just winging it. Yeah. And we learn what we need to do through listening to podcasts like yours, reading articles, right? Following mm. as many newsletters as possible and try to figure it out on our own. I think the future of most tech startup businesses, for me, is very clear. And I, I talked about this now for the entire year now, and it's become very evident that I might be actually right on this. And that is the future is belonging to vertical SaaS businesses like yours and smaller solutions that are going to end up on this lifestyle business scale. And the reason for this is, is that it's become incredibly simple in, you know, like <laughs> hyphens to build a product. And I think 
I just want to stay on this point like really quickly. And people really need to understand what that does to the market. Because if you understand the classical VC, so what you were talking about is the classical VC construct. The classical VC construct requires you to exit at a billion in 10 years or whatever the time frame is, because 50 times they have these deals, only one of them will succeed. So therefore, they need to kind of have to scale to kind of compensate on this. Now, let's say you go back to what we talked about before, and let's say you say like, okay, but we need money to grow, and we think that putting on some investor money makes sense. You can only then take money from investors that do not require you to have a 1 billion exit. And that means that you as a business need to be already a little bit more advanced. There is a huge difference if you raise money pre-seed without traction or a business like yours where you say like, okay, let's say we load up on 1 million so we can do an experiment in the United States, I don't know, with some, I don't know, sales organization or whatever. We're not going to give any influence to the board or like too much from our cap table or whatever. Even if you do this, there is something that is quite interesting to me. Some founders are trying to raise money by lying very clearly on their investor slides just to get money, you know, like to save themselves. And I understand this as well. But what happens, even if you do not give control, is usually they load up on money on a business that sometimes, well, it is determined to fail anyways. Most businesses are going to fail. And then you start to hire people. And this is, I, I call this kind of like the slavery of scale. The moment you start to scale with people, you have to make a specific amount of money. Yeah. And a bootstrapped company understands this much more. You have much more incentives to be defensive about hiring. Should we get another five SDRs? Should we not? Can we afford to run on 100,000 revenue per employee? Or can we not? Because overfunded businesses can afford this because that's their entire hypothesis, right? Like, because otherwise they're not going to grow in 10 years to this crazy size. Yeah. I think people underestimate how crazy this feels. Also, if you have your own startup, because there's so many roadblocks where you just like, shit, this could wreck the entire story that we have. Well, the thing is like, I have a lot of founders that will message me and be like, well, my VC is not like that. I have a good VC. My VC is not going to make me do that. I'm like, what you don't understand is I'm not saying the VC is going to make you do that. I'm saying the commitment that you made for that exit determines your business model of, for example, hiring, right? Or buying revenue, whatever that might be. And now you can't keep up. And then you need to raise the next round. So it's not like the VC is saying, Melissa, you need to do X. You need to be stressed out. I'm going to take away your nope. freedom. It's the model forces you to do that because you you know, you know are now responsible for the people that you hired. And you, you're you not going to go fire them because then it makes your business look bad. And you're definitely nope. not going to raise the next round. right? So this is the kind of stuff that I hope more and more founders can think about before they you know make that step. right? And to your point about like, I think, there's like now acquire.com, right? Like, and now like exited founders are buying smaller businesses and running them on their own. Like the thing is, even eWebinar started as a, I wanted it to be a micro SaaS business, right? Because I was so stressed out running my previous business. And majority of the reason is because it wasn't a great business. And I did write about this before. Like it, it was a niche products, small market, but you know, I felt like that was my training ground startup, but I was so stressed out and I didn't want to manage any people. I wanted just a small SaaS that I could manage like, you know, between two people or three people. And I wanted to make 20 grand a month. I only wanted to make 20 grand a month. Yeah. And of course it kind of, you know, became what it is now, but also because I really feel like this product has potential. I feel like I would not be doing this justice if I didn't try to grow it 
as big as possible because it has it has that potential to get there. But there are so many other businesses that even my friends run. You know, they have two to three micro SaaS businesses that pay, you know, small teams that pay themselves, not even including their team, that pay themselves one to twenty, like one to twenty thousand a month. So now you have two to three tiny businesses that do a specific function. Like one of those businesses, for example, is a Zapier, but only for three CRMs. No, it's just like a, an automation tool, but only for these three. Super, super niche. There's like seven people on the team. They make three million a year. Their profit margin is like 60%. There's two founders pay out every month. I mean, this guy's chilling, right? So I think there's going to be more and more of, of those businesses, especially as creators and content creators are, are writing more about the possibility of that. And I think it's really getting new founders, especially to think, okay, well, what can I do without this massive team yeah. and this massive outcome? Because that doesn't really mean success. It just means it's one model. Look, I think the time of unicorns is over. I really do think so. We will never see this kind of, well, never, never is a, is a long word, but you know, we will never, we will not see this kind of evaluation anymore. I think with technology going forward the way that it is, because fundamentally it will always become easier and easier and easier to create niche products, which are exactly competing for the same market, right? Like there's no more money in the market suddenly, right? So like customers yeah. still have the same amount of money. It's all getting commoditized and you will find solutions that are going to commoditize. I think the way that I learn about investment money as a broader perspective, because it could also be like, let's say you take a line of credit with a bank or something, but like not an investment from a VC, whatever it is. How I learned about it was always that you should only take money if what you want to do is not going to change, but you want to do it faster. Yeah. And that means, and this is what a lot of funders, founders forget, you can talk yourself into success as a CEO, and I've done this myself, without there being success. That is real. And a very typical example, and I would love to hear this from you, like whether you also had something like this. I can give you a very specific example. When we were launching one of my startups that I had with my dad, there was a moment where I had a lot of letter of intents mm. for really good money. So you think that you're going to make one and a half million next year if just like half of these are closing. And you're like, yeah. what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. This is perfect. Yeah. Everything's going to be fine. Not a single dollar was made from these letter of intents. Yeah. And this is where I'm saying like, it's one thing to kind of, lie subconsciously to investors, but you can also lie to yourself. Yeah. This is where I feel like if you're bootstrapped, the likelihood that you're doing this is really lower because you have to live with your finances. You have to, yeah. there's just no other way, right? Did you also yeah. have something similar? I did have something similar, but it wasn't potential customers. And I want to touch on that because I have a lot of, you know, especially like, I hate using this word, but you, it's it's like tech bros, right? Like you, you're telling a story, it's on a pitch deck and everything's amazing and you ask them how they're doing and they're always killing it. There's a lot in, in New York where I lived for three years, but I would have friends that are like, oh yeah, I've got all these customers and you know, I'm just going to raise this capital. I have all these customers now, but I know that they don't have a product. So then I would push them a little bit. I'm like, well, how many customers do you have? How much are they paying you? Oh, well, you know, it's it's just like a beta customer. It is not a customer unless they pay you money, period. Yep. That is just a user, right? And getting users are actually not that hard. But I guarantee you, if they're a beta user, they're not really using your product. And that's why I wanted to skip the beta phase because I was stuck there before. 
is I had all these beta users. But when you put a group of people that were meant to criticize your product in a room, what are they going to do? They're going to criticize your product, but they're not actually going to use it. So I know how hard it is to get a free user to a paid user. So I wanted to skip that stage, especially because, you know, eWebinar, we're we're a $100 product to start. We're not an enterprise product to start. But in my previous startup, what was really shocking to me, and this lasted for like six to nine months, is like we had, like we were going to be an open house product, but we didn't know, like we knew we were going to do something in real estate. It was going to be something for open houses. And at that time, I don't know if you remember this. It was a technology that never took off. Do you remember beacons? It was a hardware. No. Like Bluetooth beacons. So it's like near field technology. But like, imagine you've got like this beacon in your house and you've got the app and you walk in and it would ping your app to say, oh, welcome to 123 Main Street. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Or you walk into a mall and it would start sending you coupons, right? Like it it just never Mm -hmm. really took off. But, you know, we're like, oh, maybe we could be, you know, a beacon technology for open houses. Exactly as that. We would sell these beacons to real estate agents. Everyone's going to want one, right? And then they're going to put these in their open houses and everyone's going to go to their open house and they're going to, of course, they're going to have our app. They're not going to have another app because we're going to tell them to download it. (laughs) You know, never thought deeper than this. And it was just going to work. So it was like a two-way marketplace with like a hardware and software. It was super convoluted. Right. But I was like still a fairly new entrepreneur because my first company was like, it was a product company turned agency because we said yes to a lot of things. And then it became an agency. But that's how I I got out of that and and switched it to a full product company. And because it was a beacon technology, every single media outlet wanted to write about it because it was so bleeding edge. It wasn't even cutting edge, it was bleeding edge. It was like a head of cutting edge. And what I realized was it was so easy to get right up. So I I had this false sense of success from all these media outlets wanted to write about something that was nifty and cool, but I couldn't, for the life of me, I couldn't get people who were even trying it, who are not paying for it, to even understand the product because it was so complicated. But then I was like, well, how can it not be a real business? Or how can it not make sense when all these people want to write about it? So from that experience... And the thing is, I talked myself into thinking I was onto something because other people were giving me validation. But the yep. people that were giving me validation were not my customers. Yep. So that's where I learned that media validation is not the same thing as market validation. And that's why now when I read about something, I almost immediately dismiss it because it tells me a few things. You're bleeding edge or mm-hmm. you have a PR company or you have a brand name VC that has a PR company. Because media is bought unless, you know, you are like a MailChimp story or you are super bleeding edge of a technology that no one's really adopting, but it's really cool to write about it. So it's like kind of, kind of clickbait. So I experienced that in a different way, but that was, I would say a big reason why I burned a lot of that runway was I kept hammering at this product that just didn't have a market. There are a lot of good learnings into what you just said. It's funny that you said, what did you call it? Me- I, I wrote down media interest yeah. and VC Media interest. validation. It's- yeah, oh, media validation so, is not the same thing as market validation. I had to laugh about this because I wrote <laughs> down media interest and VC interest is not market interest. So this is a very interesting... But so also true. The way that I... So I wrote a guide on like, how do you find product market fit, which is a different way of saying like, so how do you fund a successful business, Right. 
And I think in there, there's a very specific section on how I think about businesses. And also, this is how I run my own stuff. This is how I advise clients. And I think what you just described is really beautiful because it is exactly in this sense. And there's a lot of stuff that people can learn from this. So the first step is you need to prove, you still need to prove that, that you have an interesting value proposition. What I offer is creating some kind of demand in the market, as you said, with customers at some point, but like you need to prove this. You can prove this by having no product at all. And you can prove this by just having a landing page or whatever. And then you need to prove that the value experience is matching what the value is promising. And that means you have to make people use the product. All right. So like that's then the kind of like the retention. And then once you have done that, you can worry about monetization and kind of prove that you can charge something from this. And most companies get burned in the very first step because they mistake exactly what you said. Interest from the market, wherever it is, because they look, oh shit, you know, like somebody's writing about us. TechCrunch is writing about us. What is the incentive of a media outlet? They do not care whether someone is paying for your product. They only care whether the story is good enough to attract readers on their side. They're not on your side and they, they never have to be and nobody's expecting yeah. them to be. And I want to share some funny numbers on this because I have a very specific experiment that I did. So before the talk, I also showed you kind of like how I make money with my courses and so forth. And the interesting thing is, I've been in the PLG space for quite some time. So I had a thousand people on my wait list at some point, like, I don't know, six or seven months ago, where I was just wondering, so why do they not close? And I was sending a survey out and I asked, so like, what is the problem? What is the actual problem? Why are you not buying my courses? Right. And there was a multi-selector. They could say like the price is too expensive. And I asked very specifically, so if I would reduce the price by 50%, would you go for it? I was trying to kind of figure out like, where is the limit of payment? 100 people responded that they would buy that course if it was 50% off. So I did mm-hmm. that. You know how many converted? Four. <laughs> no. And that is... Really? If, wow. If, if, okay. you build, if you build a business yeah. slide, you know, like where you just go and say like, hey, you know, like out of these 100 people, you have yeah. already 900,000 or whatever yeah. the number is in the end. And then you make 5,000. It's kind of a problem, right? Like uh, this is the exact crux yeah. that we have with mistaking interest from the market, which is still important. It is very important yeah. whether people are excited about your product, whether you can retain and then also monetize them. Yeah, but that's why I'm also super cautious of, you know, everyone's like, you should talk to your customers, talk to your customers. Like, yeah, it's it's definitely important to keep a pulse on customers, but like, it's like the faster horses thing, right? Like ask, the, ask people what they want, they want faster horses. Like, yeah, no, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I have a lot to yeah, say so to this, you but never, go on. Yeah, and you just you just never really know until you put something out there and you ask them to pay you money. So, I mean, my question to you is like, why do you think that happened? You ask 100 people, they know who you are, right? Like, I know why. you know, you've reached no. out, they've talked to you, four people no. converted. What was the problem there? Okay, so here's something. So this is exactly my jam, right? Like I grew up in this garden. I grew up on UX research. And the number one learning that I can give every founder right now on screen is you do not predict future behavior by asking what people do. You do it by analyzing what people did. Because people are always honest with you as much as they can. Yeah. But people are very bad in predicting their own behavior in the future on what they're going to do. So let's just take a step back and let's say you are selling a car, whatever. I always go back to the cars because everybody understands what the car is, hopefully. If I offer a car in the segment of it's going to cost you $30,000 and I want to figure out whether someone is potentially buying this car at some point, then the predictor on figuring out of 100 people 
whether they have ever spent this amount of money on a car is far more reliable than going somewhere and asking 100 people, if this car was $20,000, would you buy it? If this car was $100,000 or like $10,000, would you buy it? The problem that we have is that this is exactly the quote that you also used, right? So like people will tell you that they want faster horses. You still need to understand why someone spent 20000 or 30000 in the past on this particular car, with car lease switch interviews. Then you have a chance of kind of like figuring out whether enough people have a pressing problem. That still does not tell you how much you can charge, but at least then you know from 100 people whether this yeah. was the thing. I know that from these 100 people that I asked whether they would pay the money most of them did not have the time or the need to get my course. But why did they say that if it was cheaper? Because they were not in a buying decision. It's very easy to say that you would do something. Like, you know, this is this typical human behavior thing where you just say like, hey, Melissa, do you want to come to my marriage in the Bahamas in two years? You know, like when I'm finally <laughs> yeah. settling down, you're going to say like, yeah, sure, no problem. You know, like, yeah. But you did not really think about it. Yeah, It's very easy to commit to something unless yeah. you have to pay. And now we're full circle back again to the bootstrapped founder versus the VC that is spending someone else's commitments. And yeah, yeah I think that's just where this comes down. I to. think the next experiment you have to run is doubling your prices. You'd be like, oh, by the way, <laughs> it's now twice as much. Maybe more people will convert. Because there's like a value perception now. <laughs> yeah, so this is an interesting question. So how do you determine how much you can charge? So the ceiling of my offering is competing against what my typical students that I had in the past were aware is also otherwise in the market. And I'm competing very directly with Reforge. And like on this particular course material that I have, you know, like on PLG or Udemy and other courses that are, you know, like for general growth, you know, like I want to learn how to do a company, you know, whatever. And the limit is on about 900 euros just in terms of the money spent. The other side is the time investment. The people that I have in my particular courses, they're very, very, con how do you say, cognizant about the time that they have to kind of spend. Yeah. And this is something that people really underestimate. A good solution in a market is respecting the customer's time. And this is why self-serve has such a big moment now. I yeah. do not want to talk to a salesperson just to figure out whether something is good. I want to try it by myself. And uh, yeah. yeah, this is why we see the, this entire thing happening right now. Yeah, yeah. so I saw, like, there was, there was a Patrick Campbell today on LinkedIn uploaded a 60-second clip. Mm. And I can't remember this woman's name, but she said, she was defining product like growth. She was, she was defining PLG, and she said, in its simplest form, it's letting a prospect or customer see and try the product when they want like, why do I have to talk to a salesperson? Why do I have to fill in a form? And of course, I am like a huge advocate of that because that's what, what my product does, right? Like give people the demo, let them try it. Like, yeah. and I have a no call policy as I had written about and also mentioned to you. Like, I don't care how big of a company you are. I don't get on a call. Zero. You can't pay me enough to get on a call. And a few weeks ago, I was part of this. I mean, I wasn't because I don't do calls, but my COO was. I was part of this like 20 software company demo where the whole premise of the event was you don't have to fill in a form to get on a demo. Just come to this, you know, demo week, right? And the whole sell was if you sign up for us, we will only give your contact to the company if you request it, right? So it was hosted by a community and we were one of the 20 companies that were in it. 
And I'm like, you know what? I want, I'm going to run one of these experiments because some of these solutions claim to be a solution you must have if you are PLG. So I looked up 20 websites. I mean, 19 websites because I'm the, I'm the 20th. And not a single one gave you a demo without filling their form or booking a call. Yep. And yes, there were a lot of them were like, you know, enterprise solutions, but who cares? Right? Like there's this this whole like I have to protect my IP. I don't want to let my, you know, I don't want to let my competitors see what I have. You know what? A demo, by the way, doesn't have to be a click-through of your product. It could just be a quick 10-minute presentation. Here's some screenshots. This is what we do. This is how we're better. This is how we're different. If you still want to book a call, this is how much it is, right? If you still want to book a call, here is a link. And then you basically, you're doing all your sales team a favor by letting people, you know, disqualify themselves out. But I am shocked that companies nowadays in this day and age can still get away with that. And these are companies that we know, right? I'm probably the smallest one on that roster. And I'm curious as to why, like why that is. Because yeah. you had mentioned self-serve is, you know, is there's a, thing, a very specific it, reason. Yeah. There's a very specific reason for this. And so the interesting bit, so let's just like deconstruct this for a second. So let's say, why do demo calls exist in the first place? There's two reasons. The first one is some products are actually better off with demo calls and, you know, like talking to salespeople because they have value-based or like va- or like leverage-based pricing that does not really fit into like a pure self-serve kind of funnel where you can just say like, okay, we can charge $80 per seat or whatever. Fair enough. You know, like for instance, for trading companies or whatever, you're not just like selling your data for a specific flat price, but you want kind of some kind of share of, a, of, of their running revenue or whatever. So that's one part. The other shitty part is, is that these companies have a product that is too complex or their onboarding is so bad they don't know how to actually make a good product because they're not incentivized on this, that they need to have salespeople in the call to kind of cover this bumpy road. And this is a problem because you're reinforcing this kind of thing. Because if you have mommy watching you and cleaning up for you all the time, then the, the kid never learns how to clean up the stuff themselves, which is the product department. And that's obvious, right? So why do these companies not get disrupted? First of all, I would say that's not true. They're getting disrupted. But one problem that we have is if you take an average enterprise client, because we're living in this tech bro bubble on LinkedIn and so forth, they still need to be aware of your particular product to make a decision between what you offer and what the competition offers. And it can ironically be that they perceive, even if they know about you, that the time that they invest into figuring out what you do is taking them more time than what a salesperson does. And this is just like this interesting kind of pull because not everyone is just like a user who just like clicks through and does these things. Specifically, enterprise buyers still have the separation between the teams that are using them and the people that are closing it. But the difficult thing of this is not that you have a better product because it's really not hard in some of these enterprise markets. The difference is that these companies have been around for 10 to 15 years and their brand is just stronger, which means they have actually better access to the market. But it is diminishing. In the future, I am almost, let's say, okay, I have to be careful because I'm going to drop percentages. I am 72.3% sure (laughs) that in the future, if you need a solution, we will have language model-based solution finders in some way 
that will point you to a solution that is respecting your time and your money and is having the best product fit. And we call this in some way like, I don't know, language-based search engine optimization, whatever. And that will propel businesses like yours forward hard because right now there's way too much noise. You know, like everybody tells you like, oh, yeah, we're the best, we're the best, we're the best, we're the best. And I think that's what's going to happen for sure. That idea is for you guys. <laughs> Someone's going to build it now. <laughs> oh, it's going to happen. No, I mean, it, yeah. is, it is happening. The question that you have is, so let's say we take your webinar solution. And this is a very interesting one because I have this question quite a lot. So like what is going to happen to our markets because of AI and so forth? So you will also be impacted. So let's say a language model can operate your product. You know, like by clicking through, by setting everything up, right? So like I can host a webinar through your product and so forth, but I never have to log into your website to do so. I can just say, hey, tomorrow we have a webinar, organize everything, send me the link that I have to log into, you know, and we're not that far off from this particular future. Yeah. The interesting thing for a business like yours will be, how do you differentiate yourself if you cannot do it over the interface and the ease of onboarding? Because the language model just took this away. This is a question that we have not solved yet, right? So like the only thing that remains is the actual value that the product offers yeah. once it is kind of done. We are trying to get around bullshit marketing campaigns, you know, like and, and all empty promises and so forth. But what is a big problem for you is an impossible problem for these enterprises. They will go away. They will struggle very hard. And what you just said is like, why are they not getting disrupted? It's going to happen at some point lightning fast. Lightning fast, for sure. No. And when that happens, we're going to refer back to this podcast and say, Leia said it first here. Hey, I've been talking about this with Kieran Flanagan, who is the CMO of Zapier, six months ago. We have it on record. We're still waiting for it. And it's going to happen. But, you know, like all of this is quite wild. So when you said that, yeah, you should talk to the customer and you're skeptical about that. Yeah. I mean, I still think it's very, very important, but we should look backwards, ironically, much more. And yeah. spend enough time to really know who is our customer rather than what they say they are. Yeah. So what is in the books for you now? Like, where is eWebinar in three years and where will you be? Will you go into a board position or will you be the operative um, mega leader? I think you mentioned something in the beginning, in the intro, you know, kind of as a joke, like about me having, you know, multiple successes as a company. The only reason I'm still working is because I didn't have enough success as a company. <laughs> so I'm only working because I have to. I didn't, I sold my previous company, but not for, you know, a, a tank crunch type number that like nothing, like it, it was definitely life-changing, but it wasn't retirement level. So I definitely no. had to work again. And that's why I started this company, you know, two months after that was acquired because it's easier to build a product. You mentioned that, but it is harder and harder to execute and get people's attention, keep people's attention and build an incredible product Correct. because it's so easy to make anything, right? So the quality, the overall quality has, has actually, I think, gone down. And I just, I don't want to work forever. And I, I'm not one of those founders that are like, I want to see this go to the end. Like mm -hmm. there are so many more things in my life that I want to do that don't involve work. Like this is just a, this is a thing that I do that helps enable the other stuff that I love, like travel and party and hanging out with friends and just yep. chilling. I just want to chill. So I would love to, I mean, in my mind, I would love to get this company to a 10 million ARR company because I've 
Mm. One part is like my ego. I've never done it before. I don't know what that's like. Another part is, you know, me thinking, well, if I get to that revenue, even if I get an okay multiple, I'm just never going to have to work again. But I do enjoy living my life and, and having my lifestyle so much that I'm constantly negotiating that number with myself. <laughs> so I'm like, is it enough to have a 5 million AR company? Is it enough to have a 4 million AR company? So for me, like my goals are, my ultimate goal is, is simple. Like I just, I, I want to live my life as freely as possible without looking at price tags. And I'm not like a lavish person. I don't want a yacht. I don't want a plane. I just want to be able to travel wherever I want and not look for the cheapest ticket on a certain day. Or like I want to no. book the Airbnb that I want in the area that I want to, right? And that's like, that's how I define like success, at least financially. And so that's ultimately where I want to go. And I think for the next, you know, two, three years, like that's where I'm going to try to get to. And, you know, if we never get there and if this company just becomes like a good ATM machine and pays everybody a good salary and I can live that life, I'd be happy. And if somebody wrote me an offer that I can't refuse, I would also take it. But I'm not like, I won't do X until I hit 10 million or 100 million. Yeah. Like I just, I just don't have that ambition. And there's too many fun things to do, I think, until I, you know, build a startup. Like, I think that's probably the the lowest on the totem pole fun thing that I can do. Maybe, you know, like maybe you're going to end up like uh, Jason Fried, who's going to stay for 25 years at his company because he loves doing it. And I think the interesting thing of what you just said is like, so this is going to get a little bit personal also from my side. I think when you get to this point where you just do not have to worry that much anymore, you know, like you just know that... Success is going to find its way. It's going to be fine. You will also still have your bad days where you just like think like, oh, everything is going to fail. And then 10 minutes later, you're like, oh my God, this is the most amazing day. This really leaves you with a lot of time to think about other things in life that you probably did not think about before. And I don't mean this necessarily in a good way. So for myself, one of the big realizations as I've become more successful now Without being, you know, like, I'm not, we're not talking about hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. Is that this kind of goal to get to financial independence has a very lulling effect of like keeping you busy. And yeah. once you start to become secure in this kind of thing, you have much more time to worry about things that have, let's say, a more cosmological kind of you know, yeah. size, like your, your health is starting to go like, let's just a little bit down, you know, like, it's, you know, it hurts a little bit more every morning to just stand <laughs> yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. Partying wasn't what it was, what it used to be <laughs> and so forth. And it's interesting because I wanted to ask you like, what is the number where you would sleep well? And you said 10 million. I'm not sure, but like, I ask these questions quite a lot of people where it's just like, so how much does it have to be where you will sleep well? And I think yeah. that would be maybe the equivalent of the exit that a VC funded company has, right? Like where you just say like, okay, you know what? I think I would be fine then. Yeah. But I thought about this a lot before I started this company. What is the number? Mm -hmm. Why am I doing this for? Right. And I think a lot of founders or whatever, like books or whatever, say, oh, you have to do what you love. It's like, well, yes, I do what I love, but it's not, I, I don't only do that. Like there is also a financial success and a freedom that I'm trying to go after. Right. I think as, as founders, I think we, I think we have to own our desire for financial success to be financially successful, right? Like, because you can't just do what you love. I mean, I think that would be 100%. great if, if the two were the same. Yeah. But I thought about like, okay, what is my number? Is it 10 million? Okay, let's just use 10 million. And there are two ways to have 10 million. One is you, you net 10 million. 
right? So you have a company, you bootstrapped or not, you sell it for X amount, you pay some taxes, and that's your 10 million. Or what if I had 10 million and I make, you know, 5% per year, just putting it in some, you know, fixed investment, that's pretty conservative. And I just live off the interest. What would that give me? Hmm. And I came up with a number, okay, I think that would be like half a million a year or something like that. So the two ways is I can net 10 million, which is actually really, really hard, right? Because what people don't talk about is just because you have a million dollars in annual recurring revenue does not guarantee that you're going to sell it for 10 million, right? That, it just means that that is some multiple that someone told you out there. But like, do you know how hard it is to get someone to like follow through, buy your company, write the check, and then you have to go through the two or three years of earnout, and then you get the rest of the money? Like that's not that easy, right? A lot of acquisitions that, you know, start on that path actually don't, they don't close, right? So, or I can find a way to make 40 grand a month. That was how I saw it. So when I started eWebinar, I was like, well, I started with David. So maybe if we both make 20 grand a month, which, you know, in your 40s and 50s, like if I were to work for a company in sales, like that's what I would be making. No. So it all seemed kind of reasonable. And that was actually the premise by which this was started. Wasn't like, oh, let's just hit this out of the ballpark. It's like, how do we create a business to give us each 20 grand a month? So I think that's the very short-term goal. And I think ironically, like you still need to have a really good business and a really fucking great product so that two founders get paid 20 grand and then you pay the rest of your team. So that's no joke, right? That's still really, really difficult. And I don't take for granted, you know, where we are now, we're definitely getting closer and closer to that. But I think if I had 20 grand a month, just in salary that pays me like every month, I would be able to sleep better at night. But yeah, if I had 10 million in the bank, I would definitely sleep better. <laughs> Way better. I think you might be already there and you don't know it yet. Because again, I think we're bad at like predicting the future. So when did you start this business? This one? In March of 2019. Like I incorporated it March of 2019. Okay. So about four years. So that's about 50 months. Yeah, it is very almost. hard to not sell a business that is, I mean, stagnant, okay, whatever, right? But like, it is very hard to not sell a business for a 2x valuation if it has at least some kind of traction like yours, you know, like and everything. So you're already sitting on a couple of million anyways. This is very hard to kind of realize. And I think like if you now divide this number by 50, this is where I just arrived at, you know, you've been already yeah. making this kind of thing. And the good thing is because you bootstrapped, most of this kind of money is still sitting with you because... There's no one else sitting on the cap table except for the employees. And that's how I also got a lot of kind of sanity out of this as well for my own business, because yeah. I had to do almost a fire sale for my own retail business that I started. I was asked crazy duck to do a retail business. But the money that I had in the end, there was no loan behind it. There was yeah. no cap table. The money that landed on my account afterwards was 100% mine. And that is not to be cause scoffed at, right? Like, so it yeah. is a good thing. So I love your realistic take on this and how you went into this. But everything can and, change. Like, as you said, right, AI is coming and language models are coming. And the thing that scares me the most is competition we don't know about. Yeah. I don't, like, you know, like, I, I already know what's out there. I know we are the best solution for what we, what we do. But what is that thing that's going to change the value that I'm delivering? I have no idea. So I'm not so much like racing against time or whatnot. Like, and I think, okay, like it's great if I have this business and it just pays me this amount continuously, but how many more years do I have? <laughs> I don't know. Like things can change. 
while no one can guarantee you what you're going to do in the future, the one thing that I am very certain of is that despite of also like because of AI and automating all the bullshit away of product creation and so forth, people will always resort to one thing. And that is the trust that they have in specific people and heads, you know, or like, you know, personal brands. Yeah. And I think this is what's so difficult. That's also like how I monetize my stuff. It's very hard to put a price on your own brand because you didn't monetize it first. If yeah. you get into a board of a really good company, you already make, like if it's just an early stage startup, then you make like 40 to 50,000 in the board just because you have a name. And it's not very hard to kind of do that. And that means you also be working very, very little per year, right? So like there's so many avenues on how you can monetize your brand, even if your company would crash tomorrow. And I think that's what people really are missing. And just like to close this now also on this particular um, topic, I think you have one of the most incredible styles of writing on LinkedIn. And I mean this really from the bottom of my heart. You're very, very actionable. You have a very, very specific format and it fucking works. It really, really works. Like you have a lot of reactions of people because you're just so honest and that has value in it. And you're not monetizing this yet with the company at all, right? So like, this is where I just say like, don't underestimate this in that sense. So I I think there's something happening there a lot. Yeah, I mean, thank you for mentioning that. I mean, that's why I keep writing on there. Like I didn't know where I was going with it. And actually the reason why I started writing with it, uh, writing on there uh, a little like under a year and a half ago is because I ran out of leads. Like I came from a sales led company. I am Mm -hmm. an enterprise salesperson. The last job that I quit was at SAP. My, My first two companies were sales led. We didn't do any SEO, any marketing. Nobody in my team has marketing background. And coming into eWebinar, which is really a product-like growth company because our revenue or our pricing is low, it kind of punched me in the face. I was like, wait, you mean like people don't pick up the phone for $100 products? Like Mm. I've only ever dialed for dollars and, you know, cold email strategy and and all those things, but not like mass email, like one-on-one. But you realize for $100 product, actually, you get burned out from that pretty quickly. Because not only do you know, like, they don't respond because that's not how they buy a $100 product. And I have to learn that. And I only discovered LinkedIn because I ran out of leads and I wanted to see what other people are doing. And it just made a lot of sense to build an audience. But in the last year, I, you know, of course, as research and learning, I follow a bunch of influencers, you included, mm. and look at their writing style, what they write about. And, you know, I, I did take Justin Walsh's course just as a foundation. It just mm. made so much sense to me that a person with an audience, and it has to be a person because people don't follow companies. Your company's dead. A person is real. And I'm seeing over and over how these people are creating content just about their experience and their expertise, and they they launch products to this audience, and there's already a trust, and they cannot fail. And even though, like, I don't know if I can actually attribute, like, revenue to my product now from LinkedIn, but for me, it doesn't matter. Like I'm really investing in myself and indirectly the future of the company, but also like writing forces you to think differently about everything. I I, I don't know if it just uses a different different part of your brain, but like every Monday I write, that's all I do, but it forces me to think about other things. And then I've also through this medium got to meet other people like yourself that I would never meet in real life. And now we're connected and we can exchange ideas like, you know, years from now. And I, you know, and I hear about what you're doing as 
a solo founder now. And that fascinates me because mm-hmm. what it, the reason why I'm fascinated is because it tells me that after this, it's not over if I don't want it to be. Like if after this thing, I sell this thing, I can explore something on my own and I yeah. don't need to hire a team. And maybe I can monetize my expertise or my learnings here, but it gives me hope that like this is not the end of the road. And I think that's pretty cool. No, I think I could have not have said it better. And I think we're still underestimating it because I think we do not see exactly how it plays out. But now this is going back to my point of like, we're bad at predicting the future. But if you look at yourself as a business and you just look at these kind of numbers, right? So like how strong your acquisition is and how strong that, you know, like the product is, like the people that are starting to learn from it. The only step that you have to figure out now is kind of the monetization because the hardest part is really the audience building. And I think that's what's so beautiful. So Melissa, this was already going over for an hour and it was absolutely fantastic. Should people, even though you said you do not want to have any contact to the outside world, should people (laughs) get in contact with you? And if so, where and how? Yes, they should actually get in touch with me, but don't request a call. (laughs) So yeah, just the best way to get connected with me is through LinkedIn. So my last name is Belquan, K-W-A-N. And I write two to three times a week on my own experience bootstrapping three startups. And of course, if you want to learn more about eWebinar, how it can help your business, it's eWebinar.com. And of course, you can hop into a demo without talking to a person. Surprise. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so thank you so much for this. And I hope it was not the last time. I see you back at 5 million ARR, so next year. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> That's the end of this are you podcast. Point, are you 72.6% sure as well? <laughs> I would say maybe 26, maybe 26.7. We're going to, we're going to get you there. All right. That's the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much. Baboom. That was good. Thank you so much for listening to the Product Tea with Leah. If you don't have enough yet, you can subscribe to my podcast right now at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or you can head to my website, leahtarin.com which is L-E-A-H-T-H-A-R-I-N.com where you can find much more of my material or just want to work with me. 